One of the traditions of the Catholic faith that is often very difficult for non-Catholics is the issue of relics, uh, praying to the saints, or as I would have said as a Protestant, praying to the dead, and uh, asking for their intercession or the use of of relics as a means of prayer, as a means of healing, as sacramentals. These are certainly not a part of our non-Catholic tradition, uh, not my background, and I'd always ask the question, well, excuse me, but where is that in Scripture? Show it to me in Scripture. Well, today on Deep in Scripture, we're going to look at some texts from the Old and New Testament that give a traditional background to this belief. Thank you for joining us today on Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. It's a pleasure to be with you today on this uh, feast of uh, St. Michael the Archangel. I know those of you who aren't Catholic who are listening wonder where we get all these ideas. Well, that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. These are, are, are very important traditions in our church that actually have uh, background in the Old Testament and the Old tradition of uh, the Israelites. Um, and we see them developed and developed both through into the New Testament and then uh, polished and practiced in the early days of the church and then become a regular important aspect of our faith and our intimacy with God and with each other, empowering us to love as we're called to love. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about that today on this program. to remind you that you can always get connected to uh, the uh, this program on internet deepinscripture.com is the website for this program and you can watch this program live even now and all the archive programs and contact us if you'd like to do that but today's guest on the program is david anders he was raised in the presbyterian church of america he and his wife completed their undergraduate degrees at wheaton college in 1992 uh, a stalwart Evangelical School. He subsequently earned an MA from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in 1995 and a PhD from the University of Iowa in 2002 in Reformation history and historical theology. So David comes with us with a real strong academic background in scripture and theology. He wrote his dissertation on John Calvin. His dissertation was entitled Prophets from the Ranks of Shepherds, John Calvin and the Challenge of Popular Religion. 1532 to 1555, and he's taught history and religion in Iowa and Alabama. And uh, so, again, our guest comes with with a real strong background in Scripture and history and theology, especially in the Calvinist background, Calvinist tradition. However, he was received in the Catholic Church in 2003. He currently resides in Birmingham, Alabama, with his wife and his five homeschooled children. David's been a guest on the Journey Home program, His conversion story was uh, in the newsletter for the Coming Home Network International back in May of 2010, uh, which you can get to the, you can read on our website, chnetwork.org. And he was a guest on the Journey Home back in February of 2010. So he's a recent guest on the program. When we asked David, all right, what scriptures would you like to discuss? And I usually encourage our guests to choose verses they, quote, never saw, verses that awakened them, even though they were very familiar with Scripture, but awakened them to the beauty of Christ in his church. And David has chosen a long list of verses. They're all connected to the topic that I mentioned earlier in the program, and that is the issue of relics and the prayers of the saints. And he has given us a list of Scriptures that were new to him because as myself and my Calvinist background, uh, not only were these issues not important to our faith, we didn't see where they had any scriptural background. So let me read a few of the verses, excuse me, the verses we'll cover, and then David will mention others in the midst of our conversation. The first comes from the second book of Kings, Chapter 13, 20 through 21. So Elijah died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, lo, a marauding band was seen, and the man was cast into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. 
Now, let's see. He's got, like I said, a long list of scriptures. Let me read the verse from Tobit, chapter 12, verse 12. And so when you and your daughter-in-law Sarah prayed, I brought a reminder of your prayer before the Holy One. And when you buried the dead, I was likewise present with you. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But one other verse, let me read from Revelations chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 3. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodite's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Joined today by... Uh, David Anders. Hello, David. How are you doing? Hey, Marcus. I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule and your, I uh, hope your ad- financial advisees can wait until you get back. Uh, let's hope so. <laughs> the market doesn't change quite that fast, I hope. Oh, it depends on the day. Yeah, that's exactly right. Especially the last couple of years, it seems. But um, in fact, let me ask you that. You're you're ending up as an ad- financial advisor, which isn't the all the training you received in scripture and theology and history, but uh, but certainly I'm sure you see in the work that you do that um, you know it is still a work of the Lord. Um, you know, everything we do we can offer to the Lord, <laughs> and uh, there's no job that we can perform provided that it's um, you know it's intrinsically a moral activity that we can offer and do for God. And, that's one of the great truths of our Catholic faith, that vocation, um, you know, whatever our vocation, we can live it generously for God, and it can be meritorious, and and, uh, and he can do great things with it. That's right. You know, the, the in that parable of the talents, uh, when Jesus tells us that parable, he doesn't tell us what the talents are, you know. I mean, in the, it's the talents we've been given. That's the, what we're to be a good steward of. And uh, for some of us, it's maybe being a priest. For others of us, it's it's working out in the world. And uh, when we stand before God, it isn't uh, whether we were something else. No, it's whether we live the life we were given. That's right. That's right. And uh, we we in in the financial community have a good patron. Saint Matthew is actually the patron of those who work in banking. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hey, why did you choose these verses today? You know, it's interesting. I, as you mentioned earlier, I grew up a Protestant, and and I was a diehard, died-in-the-wool Protestant, very, very, very anti-Catholic, and, and I, I was sure that the Catholic Church was wrong and that my church was right. Well, you were so, PCA, and I you was went to Wheaton. I Presbyterian, you know, so very evangelical, yeah. born-again type of denomination. That's right. And, uh, you know, we, we thought that we had the Bible on our side. We thought we had the doctrine of salvation on our side. And there were many things we objected to in the Catholic faith, uh, the tradition being one, the, the, the understanding of salvation being very, very critical. But uh, I think if there was one thing about Catholicism that we didn't just reject, but we rejected with revulsion, just as 
this is the most vile, disgusting, pagan, unbiblical, unchristian activity that you could possibly imagine. It would be the Catholic veneration of saints and the, the most hated, loathsome manifestation of that of that devotion would have been devotion to relics, mm-hmm. to the dead bodies of the saints. And to a Protestant mindset, this is just this is just unthinkable. It's yep. just horrible. And Protestants are very fond of saying that they believe in Christ alone and they place their whole faith in Jesus alone and Catholics allegedly, as they say, uh, also place their faith in all this host of lesser intercessory beings since they don't really have their faith in Christ and that's the that's the storyline that you hear from Protestants, and uh, uh, and I bought into that uh, wholesale. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's also this myth in Protestantism that that the Reformation supposedly restored Christianity to uh, to a pristine purity that it had once enjoyed in the ancient Church and then had had moved away from in the in the Middle Ages, and uh, and what brought me to the Catholic faith. Uh, to make a long story short, was realizing that that story was wrong, that, that, that the ancient Church was Catholic through and through, and the Protestant Church was a complete innovation, a novelty, an invention of the 16th century. And, uh, and that brought me into the Church. But one of the many, many things that I discovered that brought me into the Church was when I was researching the history of spirituality, and I came to appreciate just how unbelievably important the ministry of saints and angels and the intercession of saints and angels and martyrs mm-hmm. and their relics, how important that was to ancient Christians. And I'm I, uh, very fond of a historian by the name of Peter Brown. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Cult of Saints, uh, Its Rise and Function in Latin Christianity that studies the development of this devotion in, in the ancient church. And, and the, the thing that gripped me about his work was the realization, I had always equated the, the uh, intercession of saints and prayers to saints as a pagan activity that had crept into Christianity. And Brown makes the case very compellingly that not only was this not pagan, and, and Brown's not an apologist for Catholicism by any means, he's right. just a secular historian, but he makes the case very compellingly that not only was this not a pagan activity, but in fact it was very hateful to the pagan world. And and um, he says to I'm going to quote him for a brief minute here. He says to a, a Mediterranean man of traditional background, much of this would have been downright disgusting, meaning the the um, uh, this Christian devotion to relics and to saints. Um, he says for to do this was to break barriers that had existed in the back of the minds of the Mediterranean men for a thousand years, and to join categories and places that had been usually meticulously contrasted. And what he means is he's referring to the ancient Roman practice of separating the cemetery from the city. Mm-hmm. And in pagan religion, Roman religion, uh, they're very taken up with the idea of ritual purity and cleanliness. And dead bodies were supposedly unclean. You had to put them outside of the city. And and Jupiter and the other Roman gods would have looked unfavorably on a city that had contaminated itself with these bodies. And one of the reasons for persecution of Christians was that they joined these two things that had always been separate in pagan culture. They brought the worship of God and contamination, so-called, with dead bodies into the same place. And in fact, Christians actually moved their churches and their basilicas and their and the mass out into the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is there was a, a Roman emperor named Julian. He was Julian the Apostate. He was the the last pagan Roman emperor who uh, opposed Christianity, and it was this that really offended him. It was the idea that Christians carried around the dead bones of their of their um, ancestors, forefathers, and forerunners in the faith. So this was by no means a pagan import into into Christianity. So um, uh, it, uh, this, this was a shock to me. Mm-hmm. Then the realization that not only was it not a pagan import, but that it was, it was ubiquitous. Um, uh, Brown again says that the that the veneration of saints became such part and parcel of the whole the succeeding millennium of Christian history, and on this point, the rise of Christianity in the pagan world uh, can be charted uh, by listening to the pagan reactions to the cult of martyrs. Okay, so in other words, you can track the progress of Christianity in the pagan world by looking at pagan revulsion to the cult of saints. So this is something that is so identified with Christianity that that you can actually track the progress of Christianity in the ancient world by 
looking at the progress of devotion to saints and relics. So it's, there's no separating Christianity from this practice. That realization kind of undid me. And I thought, goodness gracious me, um, I've always had this idea that the ancient Church was on the side of Protestants, and I certainly rejected this practice of devotion to the saints. Here, when I study the history, I find that this practice is so ingrained in, the, in ancient Christianity that you can't separate it. You, there is no ancient Christianity apart from devotion to saints and their relics. So I began asking myself, is this, if this is the case, uh, either I have to wholesale reject ancient Christianity altogether, and then there goes the myth that we've recovered the ancient Church, or I have to search and find out if there's some rational, theological, and biblical basis for this practice. Okay. So that's what starts my journey into the Old Testament and the New to sort of <laughs> revisit this question and see why did the ancient Church do this? Why was it such a part of ancient Christianity? And, and why is the Catholic Church faithful to this practice today? Well, in knowing your background, I'm sure that the criteria, the primary criteria you were using to say, okay, let's look at the source of this, was not, number one, what's the early church say, but number one, what's the Bible say? Of course. The early church woke me up to the relevance of the question. I had always been able to just dismiss this and think, oh, this is just some pagan practice that, that eked its way into the church. The early church taught me, no, no, this is, did not come from paganism. It had to have come from some other source. So that raised the question. Now I had to go back to the Bible and find out what was the source of this idea. Uh, All right. And, and we can get into that now. All right. So the, the, the case that Brown and many other scholars have made is that devotion to saints, angels, and relics in the ancient Church uh, was of Jewish origin. It was not of pagan origin. It was of uh, Hebrew origin. And there's actually uh, a reference to the practice in the Gospels in Matthew 23, verse 29 and 30, and again in Luke 11, uh, 47, when Jesus mentions the fact that the Pharisees adorn the graves of the prophets. And it's a verse that's gotten very little commentary until 1958, when a German scholar by the name of uh, Joachim Jeremias wrote a oh, book yes. just on this text, showing that Jesus was referencing a very common practice of veneration of the tombs of the patriarchs in ancient Judaism. Okay, um, So we find it in, in first century Judaism, we find it uh, in late antique Judaism. There are rabbis that, that uh, mention the practice, and it's worth pointing out that Jews have continued the practice of venerating the, the ancestors, the patriarchs, um, at their tombs, even to this day. There are ethnographic studies of North African Jews in Israel, even today, that continue the practice of venerating the patriarchs and, uh, and the so-called Zadokim, the holy men of Judaism. So let's go back into the Old Testament and see what is the origin of this, of this Hebrew belief. Well, um, you see in the, uh, in the passage in Second Kings the idea that Elisha's uh, his person, even his body, was endowed with, with uh, a supernatural power, miraculous power, because of his close relationship to God. And I don't see as a Protestant, there's just no way of getting around this passage. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no good Protestant explanation for why would a dead body come back to life when it hits the bones of Elisha, all right? And you find in, in Second Kings, throughout the, the book, that the, um, the Zadik, the holy man, the, the saint of the Old Testament, uh, has this uh, power that God endows in him because of his holy life, uh, both in life and in death. So in Second Kings chapter 4, Elisha raises a man from the dead, lays a boy from the dead. Um, interestingly, the first thing Elisha does is he commands that his staff be laid on, the, on a dead child. Um, so there's clearly a belief that, you know, third-class relics here, the idea that even something that comes into contact with the saint has the power to, to perform miracles. And then Elisha prays for the dead child, dead child comes back to life. And then, of course, even after death, um, Elisha continues to work miracles through his body. That's the passage we read in Second Kings 13. I, I, Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, I think you are you admitted that this was not a passage you were that familiar with back in your conservative Protestant days. I know, it would have been something I just read over and went, oh, that's weird, and kept going. I wouldn't have, I would have just sort of dismissed it out of hand because I didn't have an explanation, and, so and I wouldn't have bothered with yeah, it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I was one that, as an evangelical, I believed in the veracity of Scripture, infallibility, inspired, even to the point of believing in perspicuity, you know, in other words, that the... Uh, uh, that's not is that the right word, but in other words, the Bible is self-explanatory. That 
it explains itself. And admittedly, when I'd get to a passage like this, first of all, I would avoid it from the pulpit. Oh, yeah. And in my best, in the back of my mind, I would say, well, you know, I, I guess the Bible does include a couple stories that maybe are not, uh, should I say, true rumors. That's, I would because I wouldn't have known what else to do with this. Right, exactly. Or, you know, when the sun stood still that whole time, oh, wait, can that happen? So I'd, I wouldn't go there, whereas I know my more conservative fundamentalist friends said, no, it's, this is exactly what happened. Well, then how do you explain it? And I think you're, you either avoid it or you got to face it. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, um, it's worth pointing out, Elijah and Elisha both. So they, we find these holy men of God, you have the power, really, literally, of life and death, because they also call down curses on people who are consumed by fire and bears, maul them, and this kind of thing. And then they also raise to life. Okay, they they, they bring death, they raise to life. All right, and and objects touching them can can uh, affect these same sorts of miracles. The parallel in the New Testament is identical. All right, when we go into the Book of Acts, we find that Peter has the exact same power that is ascribed to Elijah and Elisha. Uh, in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 5, Peter calls down death on Ananias and Sapphira for their sins. Mm -hmm. They die. Um, We also learn that the shadow of Peter falling on the sick brings miraculous healing. And in Acts 19, we find out that that merely a handkerchief or an apron that has been touched to Peter's body has the power of bringing miraculous healing. So the, the type of miracles... Um, and the and the way they're brought about is identical in the life of Peter and the life of Elisha. Now, we're not told explicitly in the New Testament that this power extended beyond Peter's death. That's not said about Peter in the New Testament. It is said about Elisha in the Old Testament, but the parallels are obvious. Okay, So th- there we have clear biblical evidence that these things um, take place okay, in, in Scripture. Now, what What's the explanation for them? Why why does this happen? Okay. Um, uh, oh, let me say one other thing. Also, N- not only do we find in Scripture this idea that that uh, that these saints have this power, okay, but we also see evidenced that they that they use this power for intercession even after death. Okay, so they have it in life. Uh, their bodies have it after death, and they consciously possess the power after death. Okay. Now. Uh, a passage that addresses that question is in the book of Second Maccabees, chapter 15. Now, I know some of our Protestant listeners may not recognize the canonicity of Second Maccabees. It doesn't really matter if they recognize the canonicity of the text or not. It is a historical witness to the faith of Judaism mm-hmm. at the time of Christ, mm-hmm. okay? and an important reference point for understanding the teaching of the New Testament. So even if you don't recognize this text, you need to know what it says. That's what Second Maccabees says. Um, Judas is leading uh, the, um, the army against the Greeks, uh, and he says, okay, when he had armed each of them, not so much with the safety of shield and spear, as with the encouragement of noble words, he cheered them all by relating a dream, a kind of vision worthy of belief. So the text tells us this vision is worthy of belief. We should hold to this as being true. What he saw was this, Onias, the former high priest, a good and virtuous man, modest in appearance, gentle in manners, distinguished in speech, and trained from childhood in every virtuous practice, was praying with outstretched arms for the whole Jewish community. Then in the same way, another man appeared, distinguished by his white hair and dignity, and with an air about him of extraordinary and majestic authority. Anias then said of him, This is God's prophet Jeremiah, who loves his brethren and fervently prays for his people in their holy city. Stretching out his right hand, Jeremiah presented a gold sword to Judas. As he gave it to him, he said, Accept this holy sword as a gift from God, and with it you shall crush your adversaries. Encouraged by Judas's noble words, which had power to instill valor and to stir young hearts to courage, the Jews determined not to delay, but to charge gallantly and decide the issue by hand-to-hand combat with the utmost courage, since their city and its temple with the sacred vessels were in danger. Okay, so here in this passage, we see... Uh, Jeremiah and a former high priest of Israel, both of them dead, who appeared to Judas in a vision, and we learn they are interceding for the church. They're interceding for the people of Israel. Okay. Um, the passage that you read of from Tobit, Tobit uh, references the angel Raphael, 
And Raphael tells Tobit and Sarah, it's my job to present your prayers to God. All right? Uh, it was I who presented and read the record of your prayer before the glory of the Lord. All right? So here's an angel who is interceding uh, and actually offering the prayers of the, of the saints on earth to God. And to my way of looking at it, the passages from Revelation are a clear reference to the, to the work of Raphael in Tobit, when we learn that the elders, okay, these are uh, Christian saints who are offering up the prayers of the saints to God. So we have the, the power of these biblical figures because of their holiness of life. We see the efficacy of their physical bodies to bring healing in life and after, de- and after life and death. And then we see uh, visions, scriptural visions, that the saints have had of uh, the dead and of angels and of saints who are interceding for the Church, praying for the Church, um, uh, uh, making intercession. So these are biblical images. uh, We've drawn them from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We're beginning to get a picture that this practice, which we find rampant in early Judaism, and of course ubiquitous in early Christianity, has a biblical basis. Now, what about the Protestant charge that that this intercession of saints and angels somehow... uh, detracts from the intercessory work of Christ. Hey, David? Yes. That's a great question. Let's hold. We're going to go to a break. Certainly. Because we come back, let's address that, because you just brought to my mind also one of those other verses I never saw, which was Matthew 18, verse 10, where Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Exactly. Their angels... What do we mean by that? Well, maybe that's another verse we can talk about later after the break. Let's take a break. Next time on EWTN Live, it's that time of year again. Kickoff is upon us. How do we get our faith across the first down marker? Join Father Mitch when he talks with Danny Abramowitz and the Crossing the Goal team about getting your faith kicked off with an onside's kick. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. All right, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by uh, David Anders, and we've been looking at a lot of scriptures, David, that give the uh, old uh, intertestamental as well as the New Testamental uh, background to this development of idea that um, the saints and their relics, that there's power there. All right. All right. Pick up where you left off then. Okay, we'd said that we found passages in the Old Testament where uh, the dead interceded for Israel to great effect. All right, mm-hmm. um, we see uh, the same images being echoed in the New Testament. All right, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about why is this? I mean, why why does God allow this? Doesn't isn't God worried that He's going to detract from the glory of Christ or something if He lets other people have this uh, have this uh, effect? Okay, well, it's a biblical concept, so God must have a reason for it. <laughs> right? Now. There is a concept that runs throughout the Bible, all right, and it runs throughout Judaism as well. And the Jews call it the doctrine of zakut avot, or the merit of the ancestors. All right. And it is this idea that, that there is a, a notion of corporate responsibility or collective participation in the merits or the demerits of the few. All right. And we see this is a clearly biblical notion. I mean, it's taught in Scripture over and over again. And a classic text on this is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 6, 
where God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God himself identifies himself as the God who will bring blessing to one person because of the merits of someone who preceded him. Hmm. I will bring blessing to the thousands of the generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we actually see this happening in the life of Israel. There are many occasions in Scripture where God either punishes or blesses a group of people because of the merits or the demerits of the few. A classic text, of course, would be Joshua chapter 7, where God punishes all of Israel for the sin of Achan, uh, the fellow who steals consecrated items from the, uh, from the siege of Jericho when he's not allowed to. And all of Israel suffers because of this. Um, we learn in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, uh, David's sin brings, uh, brings suffering on, on all of Israel. And he's told the prophet Nathan, says, the sword will never depart from your house because you've done this. And, and David's children suffer because of his sin. And uh, in Lamentations, chapter 5, verse 7, we hear the lament, our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. All right. So this idea of corporate responsibility, uh, which can bring punishment, runs through the Old Testament. Also, blessing. Um, and I think one of the best passages on the blessing side is Genesis chapter 18, verse 26, when uh, God reveals to Abraham that he's going to destroy the city of Sodom. And Abraham says, well, Lord, would you, would you destroy it if there were 50 righteous people who lived there? And God says, no, for the sake of the 50, I wouldn't. Of course, Abraham barters with God and gets him down to 10. And, and God eventually says, for the sake of 10 righteous men, I will not destroy the entire city of unrighteous men. So it, it doesn't take a whole lot of righteous men <laughs> to, uh, you know, to bring God's clemency and mercy on a whole lot of unrighteous people. And at one point in, in the book of Exodus also, God is ready to wipe out all of Israel. He says he is. He, he, he's, he's sorry he brought them out of Egypt, he says. And Moses pleads with him and says, you can't do this. You can't wipe out all of Israel. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. And by recalling uh, Abraham and the promise to Abraham, God relents his punishment against all of Israel. So by the righteousness of Abraham, all of Israel was saved. Okay? Um, and uh, this, this idea of corporate responsibility and corporate merit is the, is the basis for really our whole Christian concept of redemption that comes to its culmination in Christ, all right? And uh, this idea of being in Christ right, is a very New Testament idea, but it has a very strong Old Testament basis. In, in uh, 2 Samuel 20, when the people revolted against uh, the rule of uh, David's family, of, of Judah, over all of Israel, they said, we have no share in David, they no longer wanted to be identified corporately with the person of David. Didn't want to bear his uh, merits and demerits. Right? And this concept of being in someone, very Old Testament idea, is picked up by the New Testament as and applied to the Christian's relationship to Christ. We are in Christ, mm -hmm. right? so that corporately we share. He doesn't have any demerits, but we all share in the merits of Christ. Um, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Paul tells us that those who have been baptized are clothed with Christ, or clothed in Christ. Of course, in Romans 8, we learn that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, so we have this corporate identity um, in Christ, all right, and this idea of being corporately related to the merits of a few righteous people being a very Old Testament idea. Now, does it detract from Christ for us to also be related to the merits and the prayers of, of his saints? All right. Well, clearly it didn't detract from the, from the unique glory of God in the Old Testament for Israel to have this relationship with its patriarchs. That, that was no derogation of God's glory and authority in the Old Testament. You know, the merits of Abraham or the prayers and intercession of Elisha or Jeremiah 
didn't detract from the unique glory of God in the Old Testament. No more does it do so in the New Testament. However, there's an added element in the New Testament that makes it even more appropriate that we should benefit from the prayers and intercession of the saints, even more appropriate in the Christian dispensation than in the Old Testament. Um, and the idea is that not only do we share in the merits of Christ, uh, something that Protestants affirm, but we also share in his ministry and his intercession. All right? Why is this? It's because the union that the Christian enjoys with Christ is so close that we actually, in a mystical sense, become Christ. This is how the book of Ephesians describes it. It says that the Church is the body of Christ. The Church Fathers, St. Gregory of Nyssa, could say he who beholds the Church really beholds Christ. All right? And so the, the, the saints, when they intercede, when they have merits, and when their good deeds and prayers uh, avail for the benefit of the Church, all right, rather than derogating from Christ's glory and authority, what it does is it shows us how powerful the union is between the Church and Christ. Hmm. That th it's through the Church that the ministry of Christ is made effective in the world. And this doesn't detract from Christ, it increases his glory, because we see it being really made effective in the lives of his people, that intercession and that power. This is, again, a very New Testament concept, thoroughly biblical. All right, St. Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24, now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the Church. Now, let's pause on Colossians for a minute. This is a text, I'm sure that you, you can relate to what I'm saying. When you're a Protestant, <laughs> they don't have any clue what to do with this. I, I didn't. I never preached on, uh, on this text, that's for sure. They, they just, they don't have a clue what to do. And, and here, here is Paul saying, that, that his sufferings actually avail for the sake of the Church and fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now, as Catholics, we also believe that Christ's sufferings were, were, were infinitely meritorious and mm -hmm. utterly sufficient. Mm -hmm. So we're not, we're not affirming, Paul's not affirming, and we're not affirming that, that there was anything insufficient about Jesus' sacrifice. Okay? But we are saying that, that Jesus allows us, God allows us, to participate in that, in that sacrifice through our own sacrifices. And his great sacrifice makes our little sacrifices worth something. And it really is a, a, a tremendous condescension on the part of God to allow my meager works to affect something for the sake of the body of Christ. And this is a way in which he allows me to be conformed to Christ, uh, to, to, to share in that intercessory and the... Uh, and, and repertory work, right? And of course, the the place where this takes place preeminently is in the holy sacrifice of the mass, where the church constantly recalls and makes re-present the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ is made present to the church in the mass. And in that place, that's the place where the Catholic, more than any other, can unite his own sufferings and his own feeble merits to those infinite merits of Jesus. And, uh, and ask that God do something great with them. You know, David, uh, I know you can relate to this, uh, that when I look at my background as a Calvinist pastor, that almost everything you've said for the last 10 minutes didn't click with what I used to teach or believe. Um, and part of the reason, and I'm wondering <clears throat> when this happened historically in theology, but I'm wondering if it's because, as a Protestant, I took Old Testament prophecy, like Ezekiel 18, verse 20, to basically mean that everything you've just said is thrown out the window. And let me read that, because Ezekiel 18, whereas, you know, in the other verses, it talks about, you know, the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation, and... and and all of that connectivity, whereas Ezekiel 18 talks about, beginning with verse 14, but if this man begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and fears and does not do likewise, who does not eat upon the mountains or lift up the eyes, and it goes on, is the son basically going to get punished for the father? And that's when the prophet says in verse 20, the soul that sins shall die. 
The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And I remember using a verse like that, in other words, to basically, and I wasn't consciously trying to undercut everything you've just said. That just never came to my mind because it was such an almost subliminal assumption that what counts is my individual relationship with Jesus, not any idea of any connection with anybody alive or dead. It's me and Jesus. You know, it's interesting that you would bring up the passage in Ezekiel, and, and uh, because there's a related passage, I think it's in chapter 32 or 33, where um, Ezekiel deals with the same theme, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the soul that sins shall die, and the soul that turns from his sin shall shall live. Uh, there's a rela- the related passage where Ezekiel says, what of the man who lives his entire life righteously, and then turns from the Lord? And, and uh, Ezekiel says, all of his righteous deeds will be forgotten, and it will be as if he had never been righteous. Or what of the man that lives his entire life in wickedness, and then repents and turns to the Lord, mm-hmm. it'll be as if he had never been wicked, and all his righteous deeds will be remembered. That's Ezekiel 33, that's right. 33, right. Yeah. And th- this was a proof text for the Catholic position in the Reformation, because, because of course, the Protestant position is this doctrine of... Um, their doctrine of perseverance is that once a person has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they will never fall away. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, of course, the idea that, that, uh, uh, that you would actually be held responsible for your morality, right, that's anathema to, to a Protestant. You're not, you're the, in their, in their uh, way of thinking, uh, that you're forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and even if you continue to sin, you're not held responsible for those. That's, that's what the, the mm-hmm. Protestant doctrine is and of course here Ezekiel really radically refutes that says a whole life of righteousness will not avail for you if you turn at the end, okay? which is why the Catholic Church has always taught that uh, perseverance of the saints means that we must persevere in our faith and in our state of grace. And if we turn away from that, then then we can lose our salvation. And uh, so I think uh, I really think Ezekiel uh, is uh, is on the side of the Catholic Church here. And if we and the point being in the you know, if we stand before God one day, as it says in Romans 2, and it says in, a, in a, any number of places um, later in Romans also, uh, Romans 14 and 15, we'll be held accountable for our life. We'll be judged not for what my great-grandfather did, but what you're saying and showing the tradition is, is that yet the connectivity of, our, of the family of God there is the connections of the merits that affects our lives. But when we stand before God, our judgment is not on what they did, it's on what we did. Well, you know, this is, this is actually where the Catholic doctrine of purgatory makes so much sense out of the Bible, where the, the Protestant rejection of purgatory leaves many of these verses just in conflict with one another. Um, in, the, in the Catholic idea, of course, the soul who sins will die. The, the person who willfully turns from God and utterly rejects Him by, by, by being in the state of mortal sin, no prayers can avail for that soul. That person is lost and they go to hell. Right? But for the person who, who has not sinned mortally, all right, um, but who dies uh, not having been purified of all of their sins, all right, and so they, they enter the state of, of purification known as purgatory, for that person, the merits and prayers of the saints and of the church avail much, <laughs> and that that's precisely the context in which this this sharing of the merits, both both in life and in purgatory, those merits have, uh, tr- have tremendous value for the church. And uh, in fact, the the dead in purgatory can no longer merit for themselves, but they can uh, avail themselves of the merits of the church and of the saints. All right, let's take another break, final break, Dave. When we get back, couple couple thoughts uh, sure. tying this in for our audience who might be saying, okay, what has this got to do with me? All right, let's apply this to their lives when we come back from the break. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International, 
or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by David Anders. Uh, one other scripture that you had posted for the website, which we haven't gotten to, which I don't know if you want to bring this into your conclusion, but it's that James 5 passage. Oh, yes. Which uh, from verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. You know, I'm so glad you brought that passage up because... Uh, I mean, this this is kind of the the New Testament basis uh, for this whole practice. That mm-hmm. uh, we believe that that in death, uh, uh, the Christian is is not defeated. He's not uh, he is victorious. Christ has overcome death. So there's no reason to suppose that that Christ, who came to destroy death, that this close bond of prayer and intercession that the church uh, exhibits in the members one towards another. I pray for you. You pray for me. Why should that end at death? Uh, it seems much more uh, reasonable that since Christ conquered death, that 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 relationship would only be strengthened, all right, in glory, not not diminished. Of course, the Protestant position is that uh, once death comes, the, people, the church on in heaven no longer prays for the church on earth and has no relationship. To it. Well, no, we that that's that's antithetical to the nature of redemption. Now, the church in heaven. Is uh, is fully righteous. No sin there at all. Okay, no sin there at all in heaven in the, in the presence of the Lord. And we've told by James that a righteous man, one who's been purified of all sin, that his prayer is enormously effective, enormously effective. And he cites Elijah in that passage. You you know prayed that it wouldn't rain and it doesn't rain mm-hmm. and so forth. So why would we not want to avail ourselves of the intercession if we ask our if I ask my wife to pray for me, ask my pastor to pray for me, ask my friends on earth to pray for me? Why would I not want to avail myself of the powerful prayers of my friends in heaven? Uh, when I know from Scripture that they do pray for me, that they are praying for me, uh, when, I, when I know from the witness of history that this has always been the practice of the Church uh, in Old Testament times and new to seek the intercession of these friends in heaven, uh, why would I not want to avail myself of that? And... Um, you know, I think it's appropriate we had this conversation today because it's the, the Feast of the Archangels. And That's right. as I'm sure you know, I believe it's uh, St. Gabriel who's the, the patron of radio. <laughs> and, yep. uh, and uh, you know, I have a, a pastor who's always very fond of, of exhorting us to ask for the intercession of our guardian angels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Which is that passage that. in Matthew exactly. I mentioned earlier. Their angels are always before the face of God. Yep. And uh, we, uh, you have a guardian angel who's always with you. Um, who loves you intensely and will be with you always, and uh, and whose job is to pray for you and to help you out. Mm-hmm. And why we would not want uh, their help, you know, is beyond me. Um, now don't you agree? Oh, I I totally agree. And uh, I've often wondered when I look back, even in my my years as an evangelical Protestant, when I would ask the Lord Jesus for intercession, and He certainly was faithful. There's no question. And I'm eternally grateful to the men and women who brought me uh, to Jesus Christ long before I thought, even considered the Catholic Church. But when I look back, I was I was ignorant of the guardian angel, the intercession of the saints. And I learned again then from hindsight that how blessed I was to be a part of the family, even though I didn't know that it was praying for me. Uh, right. Um, I was the eighth child conceived by my mother, the first seven all died um, and uh, prematurely uh, before they were born. And 
as a Protestant, I just ignored them completely, as most Protestants sadly do. But then later I realized, wait a second, I have siblings who are praying for me, which really connects with our pro-life convictions uh, and why we uh, recognize that every single soul is is a, 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 a part of God's will, not never a mistake, and that this family is large and long and continues. I mean, that's the, the great communion of the saints. And I think it's worth pointing out that, that this isn't some sort of uh, 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 optional addendum that we stick on to the Christian faith. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to have a devotion to the saints. Uh, uh, it, it, this, is, this, is part of our, this is part of our faith. This is part of the deposit of faith. We confess in the creed that we believe in the communion of saints. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's extremely important. It, it shouldn't be uh, forgotten or neglected or relegated to a second, uh, second place or, or, or ignored. And, uh, and, of course, preeminently, uh, our devotion to the Blessed Virgin is uh, it's not optional for a Catholic. Should, it's not optional for Christians. Um, Mary herself said that all generations were to call her blessed, mm-hmm. and uh, and it it brings great graces on the church and on the individual Christian when we when we do this. And uh, you know, when I was studying all this in history, um, I found out that the church fathers from the earliest days, from the second century uh, onward, uh, celebrated Mary as having a, all of the saints prayed for us. But she had a, a particular unique role in the history of redemption. And, the, you know, the, the key event in all the space and time to which uh, Peter tells us angels long to look, all of creation from, from eternity past and present waited for the moment of the Incarnation as the singular moment of, of existence. And it was Mary who brought that Incarnation to being by saying yes to God after the Annunciation. Because of that, she has a unique role in the history of redemption that the fathers all recognize, and we urge us to uh, seek her prayers. Well, David, we've run out of time. I thank you for joining us. Uh, hope to have you back. We can go into some of these issues a little deeper, even. Um, it, one thing this does reminds me of is the, the blessing that the church is as a guide, because often the misunderstandings come about as a result of poor catechesis. And uh, you know, individual interpretation ends up with all kinds of misunderstandings of this, as we know. So, we... Marcus, before we're done, can, yeah. I, can I plug my website? Real quick, real quick. Calledtocommunion.com. Excellent. Please visit that, folks. Find out more what Dave is doing. David, thank you for and, on the show. And friends of mine also, they're involved in that. All right. God bless. Okay, Talk you. to you again soon. Sure. God bless. <laughs> 